Hello everybody, it is the time of year to begin registering for one or two of my slow groups that begin in July. My slow groups are these special groups where I focus on one topic and we deeply unpack it over the course of six months. So these are highly nuanced, deep dive, advanced groups. These are excellent for those of you who have taken my six week course or who just want to focus on one particular topic through a somatic and trauma-informed lens. The two that are opening up in July, or will begin in July, are my embodied parenting group and my embodied nutrition group. The embodied parenting group is just like it sounds, learning how to parent from your body, learning how to ground yourself in your parenting so you're not parenting from a reactive triggered place, but from a much more conscious place so you can actually find joy in your parenting instead of it being a total hellscape, like some of you have told me it is, and I've experienced it myself. The other group is an embodied nutrition group. This has been requested for years. For the past four years after students complete my course, they say, can you please do a course on nutrition and make it longer than six weeks? So finally, I can say, yes, you can, and I can, and I did. It is a six-month unpacking of the intersection between trauma nutrition, and somatics. How do we recover from stress and trauma via food? How do we relate to food as a being and not just some object on the plate? What's the biochemistry of food? Why is it not the best for my blood sugar to have toast, but lentils are just fine if they're both carbohydrates? All of this and more will be unpacked in this six-month group. To register for these groups, please go to my website, holisticlifenavigation.com, and click Groups or you can click the link in the episode details below. Registration closes on June 1st. It is only open through May because we need the month of June to prepare everybody for July. I'm looking forward to this deep dive with you all. I'll see you there. On today's episode, I navigate whiteness and how to honor European heritage. Welcome to the Holistic Life Navigation Podcast, where we discuss every aspect of life through the lens of somatic psychology, nutrition, and self-inquiry. My name is Luis Mojica, and I'm a somatic educator who teaches people how to find safety inside themselves so they can better navigate this strange and sensational human experience. Your time to learn begins now. Today's episode is inspired by um, an amazing article somebody emailed me by a woman named Lila June. And um, what's amazing about this article is um, Lila, might as be Lila. So I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I'm going to call her Lila. Um, and if I'm wrong, I apologize. Lila June, uh, she's an author and an activist, and she's of Diné, which is Navajo, uh, and European heritage. So she's mixed. And she has this incredible story about connecting to her European heritage after growing up um, feeling like she had to be against it. And before I read the article, and it's a long one, so I'm going to take my time reading it. I want to explore this a bit because I find this fascinating. Um, 
it has been because of, I would say because of the pain and the residue and the current experiences of racism in America, in the last five, six years, I've increasingly seen people, particularly in liberal circles, um, feeling guilty for their whiteness. I see people who do DNA tests and they focus on the relatives who or the ancestors who are not white. Um, there's a shame attached to this. And I think this is such an important thing to sit with because uh, shame is not a physiology that allows us to move forward. Shame is something that causes us to curl in. And oftentimes, socially, shame causes us to fawn. Now, if you go way back to my early episodes, I'm thinking it's, um, I'm thinking it's episode four and five. I'm trying to look right now. Uh, I had someone named April Harder on who I just adore. And we had two episodes because it was such a long discussion. We had two episodes about uh, navigating racism. Uh, she did what was called racism recovery work. And she really saw the roots of racism built in narcissism um, in addition to colonization. Episode five and six it is, if you want to go listen to it. Um, one thing we talk about in these episodes and something I've I've worked on with companies and individuals and therapists and teachers is the the reflex for people who identify as white when they're in a room with each other or with people of color, the reflex to put themselves down, that to be opposed to racism, they are going to self-hate and they're going to even disconnect themselves from their ancestors or talk badly about them. And I always saw this as a fawning response. There's a, a term for it called performative allyship, where you put up a Black Lives Matter flag or you put up a rainbow flag or you put up, you know, hate has no home here, you know, whatever it is, just to kind of signal that you're virtuous or you're politically correct or you're on the right side of history kind of thing without actually embodying what it is and having a practice and understanding in it. And so I think this um, experience that I see a lot and started noticing in my own body around um, denying and disliking your whiteness is dangerous because when you are walking around with shame and any kind of self-hatred, um, you're unable to truly authentically connect to the people around you. There's a part that's performing out of the shame and there's a part that's freezing from the shame. So how do we hold this space? What I find fascinating uh, when I think of colonization, one thing that made uh, colonization and essentially the last several centuries in America so um, successful in terms of domination and control over certain peoples was is the invention of race. So we lost place, right? We lost land origin. We lost individual indigenous um, tribes, groups, peoples, and how they related to a place. And what we gained was a color. So you were no longer Irish, you were no longer French, you were no longer Italian, you were no longer Portuguese, you were white. You were no longer Nigerian, you were no longer Jamaican, you were no longer uh, Puerto Rican 
or Haitian, you were black. Um, and then there's even greater nuances under Asian. I would say the same thing for Hispanic and Latino, you know, no longer Mexican, no longer Spanish, no longer Puerto Rican, no longer Cuban, Hispanic. So as we get this race ideology and these kind of overall categories, and I'm going to really focus on this one with black and white, because even within those other groups I named, there's still a further segregation within those groups and distinction separation with black and white within the Latino community. There are white Latinos and there are black Latinos. And within that, there's disparity. So it comes down to this white-black binary that was completely constructed. Now, visually speaking, if we take away all construct and we put ourselves in our child mind, I can look at two people, one person has black skin, one person has white skin, and I can notice there's a difference. There's a difference between the two of them. What's learned is not the difference, but the overcoupling. What black means, what white means. Overcouplings, if you haven't heard my my previous episodes, um, again, I'm trying to find it in real time as I speak to you. I'm going to look right now uh, because it's great to refer to these. It really gives you more nuance if you want to pause and look it up or listen to it after. Episode 94 is where I go deeply into overcouplings. Overcouplings are when we attach a general meaning to a person, a situation, in a guaranteed manner. So it's a guaranteed association. Overcouplings are amazing ways to um, brainwash, condition, train, learn um, specific things in life. So if you grow up watching the news, like I did in the late 80s, early 90s, um, in Pennsylvania, there is a very specific story on the television that would be streaming all day long about blacks and about whites, right? The story with black people was they were either funny or dangerous. The story with white people is they were either beautiful or ugly. That was my interpretation as a child growing up. There was the poor white trash, which is actually where I lived. And then there was the really beautiful, you know, kind of like blonde idea of uh, perfection, right? There's the Jonathan Taylor Thomas of perfection, if you will, um, which I never was able to achieve because I was more in the white trash <laughs> sector and um, from a mixed Puerto Rican family. So I didn't really resonate with that American image of the Caucasian male or female. Why this is important is these overcouplings, they become part of your biology. They become, when someone says implicit bias, what we're really talking about is overcouplings. My body sees this person and has an immediate association based on what has been trained or what it's experienced. So sometimes there's no training or conditioning, there's experience. Personally speaking, I had negative experience after negative traumatic experience with white straight men. That became, they became part of my overcoupling. My language of my body overcoupled any man that was white and straight with possible threat. And I would seize up around them. I wouldn't trust them. I wouldn't go places like gyms. I wouldn't work at certain restaurants. If I knew that that was the majority, I couldn't go there. Whereas historically in my life, um, anyone who was black, anyone who was Latino, anyone who was a white woman, or if you were gay, regardless of your skin tone or, or ethnicity, 
I had safety. I had safe experiences with these people. So I didn't have the overcouplings of thinking they were scarier to be feared. So I would feel really comfortable going into those settings. And I did. So this is how this is how overcouplings work. And I'm saying this because why colonization had uh, one of the t- arms, I should say, of colonization that were so effective and still is effective to this day is the overcoupling that comes with race via color. Now, I'll tell you more about this. When I think of my own family, my so I'm made up of three different lineages, specifically um, Irish, German, Puerto Rican. Now, within those, there's more nuance. There's North African. There's, um, um, I'm trying to remember the other ones. There's North African. There's Puerto Rican and Taino. There's German. There's Irish. And there's one other I always forget. It might be Portuguese, actually. Oh, yeah, like the, spell, the Iberian Peninsula. So Spain and, and Portugal. Um, and so these are what actually make up my DNA. Um, but I, I didn't have that nuance. I always just knew Puerto Rican, Irish. I didn't even know the German part until later. So I say this because when my family was immigrating here, when the German, when the, the Germans came here first, so my grandmother on my father's side, she was completely German. They actually came from Hungary. Um, and she she had her her bloodline seemed to be of that region particularly specifically. So really Hungarian, but we said German. And my grandfather on my father's side, he is Puerto Rican. So he was made of Taino and Spain. His mother was Spanish, his father was Taino. Okay. And then on my mother's side, her mother was Irish with a little speck of German thrown in there. And her father was Irish with a dash of German thrown in there too. Now, when the Germans came in from my mother's side, they came in during World War I. Now, in America, German was not considered white. It was considered German. And my great-great-grandfather and any family members that came over with him, they changed the spelling of their last name. It was, I think, Rudiger was the German name they changed it to rudy gare and they went by uh they'd say they were french so they actually lied about their ethnicity because germans were not appreciated they weren't considered part of the white american future or dream this is the same for the irish people my irish ancestors that came over were not considered white they were put in a class that was separate from the american dream what we were working toward in america right So ideally, if you had white skin, spoke English, and you were from England, you fit. If you didn't, you were othered. Now, over the course of one generation, these people, my ancestors, were able to assimilate. So when they had children, they didn't speak their native language to their children. Their children grew up speaking American English. So in one generation, they lost their accents, and they lost their ties to their land. They lost their Germanic roots. They lost their Irish roots. They became Americans. Now, they knew they were Irish. They knew they had some German in them, but nothing was really practiced. I think one of my great uncles celebrated a lot of the Irish holidays still, but it wasn't uh, something that they were deeply embedded with because they became white. They assimilated. Now, you go to my father's side. Okay, my grandmother's family, they were one of the earliest Germans to arrive. I can I trace them back to the 1700s in Pennsylvania. So they were here really early. And they might have done some bad things. I don't know. I haven't been able to find that. But they came here pretty early. 
What I love about this story though, and I'll get there in a minute. My grandfather came over here in the 20s from Puerto Rico, came right over, didn't speak any English, taught himself English with a dictionary and by watching television, listening to the radio. So that's how he learned English by immersion. And his English was very, very, very small, the amount of, of words he could use to describe himself and speak. And his accent was very thick. So he relied on his friends and family around him to order food for him, make his doctor appointments, those kind of things, as, as you know, we all grew up and were able to help him in that way. What's interesting is when you have white skin in America, you can, within one generation, assimilate and become white, right? Because you can look the part. Uh, especially when you speak the part. When you have dark skin, when you have mixed skin, when you look visibly different, and this is true for some people from Hungary, from Poland, I've met many different people. You can tell there's this thing where people have said, you know, you don't look American. Where are you from? Regardless of skin tone, I think people of color might get it more, but I've seen people, people get that who are in my family. I've seen my friends get that, white and black and mixed. And what that really means is someone saying, oh, the standard cutout, like the English white male or female that we've been seeing, this doesn't look like that. So there's this body recognition of this person's facial features, their their skin tone, their hair texture, maybe their clothing style. Something differs from the story I've been given, the story that was part of the colonization, right? I say that because my grandfather his his desire to assimilate was to make his kids assimilate. He couldn't assimilate. He couldn't pass. He had darker skin. He was very visibly Puerto Rican, and his accent was so thick he couldn't he couldn't really um, speak very clear English to people. So he decided he was going to work really hard, and that was going to be his contribution, his kind of proof of being um, worthy of citizenship. He was a tenant farmer for years with my grandmother. And I love the story of them because here's this woman that came from a, a German family who lived in America for hundreds of years. And I think just short of five or six years after interracial marriage became legal, she fell in love with this man. She's walking down the street and he's driving up in his El Camino and she sees him and she yells, nice car. And he goes, want to get in, mommy? And that was it. <laughs> And I love this story because one ancestor who a lot of people would classify as the quote colonizer, possible slave owners in in, in the ancestry of you know 1700s German Pennsylvania, that the descendants of those people, my grandmother, saw a Puerto Rican man, a man of color, someone that her area and neck of the woods and her era she lived in was highly racist. She felt a draw to this person and she married him and had two children with him. And we all descended from this. So th this idea of overcoupling whiteness with racist, overcoupling whiteness with the colonizer, or overcoupling whiteness with something bad, that internalized thought of hatred and disgust, it's part of the arm of colonization. One, yes, there can be realities that you have family members who are racist. This is for those of you who identify as white. So you're not making it up that, no, actually, Luis, I do have a racist family and it disturbs me. Absolutely. And that doesn't speak for your whole lineage. What people do now doesn't speak for what they did. Who you are now in your body 
doesn't speak for what your father did. So this idea of I have to have shame because of what my ancestors did, I see that as very codependent. Because my grandmother taught me, even though my ancestors and her direct, her father was a racist, having this uh, in her family close to her, she transformed that in her lifetime by marrying my grandfather and marrying into a Puerto Rican family and raising mixed kids, one visibly, one white passing, which is my father. So it's there's much more nuance when we remove white, which is again, just a construct that a lot of us are abiding by in the name of trying to deconstruct racism. I think of Morgan Freeman, there's this excellent interview, you can type it in. Um, I think if you just type in Morgan Freeman on race, and he says something like, do you want to know how we end racism? I stop calling you a white man, you stop calling me a black man. You call me Morgan Freeman, you see me for what I do in this lifetime. And I thought, brilliant. Because the invention of race, which led to, which resulted in racism, all it does is overcouple someone with their color. So you see a black person, you see a white person, and you think you know them. You think you know what music they like. You think you know what demographic they're in, how much money they make, how they feel about themselves. You don't know anything about them. So when we remove race and we invite curiosity, we start wondering, what lands did your ancestors come from? What does your body enjoy now? Where are you now? Tell me about you now. And we learn in real time this individual and we individuate them from this construct of race that we and others have placed them in. We place ourselves in it all the time. So I think there's this, there's this really great gift. I've talked about it a lot in the podcast of being mixed, where whether you present white or present mixed, you live between many lands and many worlds and many constructs. So you don't feel comfortable checking white on an application. You also don't feel comfortable just checking Hispanic on the application or just black, because you're made of many things. But when you check one of those things, you also activate the overcouplings that come with that based on what society, history, and personal experiences of other people has been lumped into. So I'm going to move on to this article because I think it's just brilliant. And it gives us a really, it gives me, I should say, a really felt wisdom and experience of how we can honor these ancestors who in a lot of circles we have called colonizers, we have called oppressors, we have called racists as if that's all they were. There's parts of them in there. But if you look in the human history, every single ethnic group around the world has practiced some form of oppression or domination and has practiced some form of beautiful, pagan, indigenous-rooted loving and belonging. They've, they've all done both, and we all can do both. So um, let's hear this amazing article from uh, Leela June. It's titled... Reclaiming Our Indigenous European Roots I spend a lot of time honoring and calling upon my Native American ancestors. I am keenly aware that my father's people hold a venerable medicine as well. He has ancestry from the great sacred motherland of Europe. I have been called a half-breed. I have been called a mutt, impure. I have been told my mixed blood is my bane. 
that I'm cursed to have an Indian for a mother and a cowboy for a father. But one day, as I sat in the ceremonial house of my mother's people, a wondrous revelation landed delicately inside of my soul. It sang within me a song I can still hear today. This song was woven from the voices of my European grandmothers and grandfathers. Their songs were made of love. They sang to me of their life before the witch trials and before the crusades. They spoke to me of a time before serfdoms and before Roman tithes. They spoke to me of a time before the plague, before the Medici, before the guillotine, a time before their people were extinguished or enslaved by dark forces. They spoke to me of a time before the English language existed, a time most of us have forgotten. These grandmothers and grandfathers set the ancient medicine of Welsh bluestone upon my aching heart. Their chants danced like the flickering light of Tuscan cave fires. Their joyous laughter echoed on and on like Baltic waves against Scandinavian shores. Mm. They blew worlds through my mind like windswept snow over alpine mountain crests. They showed to me the vast and beautiful world of indigenous Europe. This precious world can scarcely be found in any literature, but lives quietly within us like a dream we can't quite remember. As all this was happening, I peered into the flames of our Danae Hogan fireplace. These ancient European voices whispered to my heart to help me understand. See, our songs are not so different from your Dinay songs, they seemed to say with a smile. In this moment, the moment I first acknowledged and connected with my beautiful European ancestors, I could do nothing but cry. It was one of those messy, snotty, shuddering cries where my face flowed over with tears of joy and sorrow. It was the cry of a woman who met her grandmother for the first time. I always wondered where she was, what she looked like, what her voice sounded like, who she was, and now for the first time, I could feel her delicate hands run through my hair as she told me she loved me. I sobbed and I sobbed and I sobbed. Intermixed in there were also tears of regret. My whole life I was taught to hide my European side. All I knew was that my father came from Dallas and that was all I needed to know. These pale-skinned mothers and fathers were to be forgotten, I was taught. They carried violence in their blood and avarice in their smile, I was taught. They were rubbish, I was taught. There was no need to ask questions about them or think about them, I was taught. Whenever I wrote down my race on official forms, I would only write Native American as I was taught. But then, as thousands of European ancestors swirled around me and reassured my fearful heart, I wished I had honored them sooner. I wished I hadn't disowned them. I wished I knew how beautiful they were. I wished I could have seen through the thin wall of time that dominates our understanding of Europe. I wished I could have realized the days when indigenous Europeans were deeply connected to the earth and to kinship. In my mind, I told them I was so, so sorry for forsaking them. But of course, they didn't care. They only held me tighter and assured me they would be with me to the end. The sweetness of this precious experience changed me forever. I have come to believe that if we do not wholly love our ancestors, then we do not truly know who they are. For instance, I get very offended when people call Native Americans good-for-nothing drunks. 
Because by saying this, people don't take into account the centuries of attempted genocide, rape, and drugging of Native American people. They don't see the beauty of who we were before the onslaught. And now, I am offended when people call European descendants privileged, good-for-nothing pilgrims. Because by saying this, people do not take into account the thousands of years the European peoples were raped, tortured, and enslaved. They do not understand the beauty of who we were before the onslaught. They do not understand that even though we have free will and the ability to choose how we live our life, it is very hard to overcome intergenerational trauma. What happens in our formative years and what our parents teach us at the time can be very hard to reverse. They estimate that 8 to 9 million European women were burned alive, drowned alive, dismembered alive, beaten, raped, and otherwise tortured as so-called witches. It is obvious to me now that these women were not witches, but were the medicine people of old Europe. They were the women who understood the herbal medicines, the ones who prayed with stones, the ones who passed on sacred chants, the ones who whispered to me that night in the Hogan. This all-out warfare on indigenous European women not only harmed them, but had a profound effect on the men who loved them. Their husbands, sons, and brothers. Nothing makes a man go mad like watching the woman of his family get burned alive. If the men respond to this hatred with hatred, the hatred is passed on, and who can blame them? While peace and love are the correct response to hatred, it is not the easy response by any means. The indigenous cultures of Europe also sustained forced assimilation by the Roman Empire and other hegemonic forces. In fact, it was only a few decades ago that any Welsh child caught speaking Welsh in school would have a block of wood tied to their neck. The words WN were there inscribed standing for Welsh not. This kind of public humiliation will sound very familiar to any Native Americans hearing this who attended US government boarding schools. Moreover, our indigenous European ancestors faced horrific epidemics of biblical proportions. In the 1300s, two-thirds of indigenous Europeans were wiped from the face of the earth. The Black Death, or bubonic plague, ravaged entire villages with massive lymph sores that filled with pus until they burst open. Sound familiar? The parallels between the genocide of indigenous Europeans and Native Americans are astounding. It boggles my mind that more people don't see how we are the same people who have undergone the same spiritual assault. The only difference between the red story and the white story is we are in different stages of the process of spiritual warfare. Native Americans are only recently becoming something they are not. They are only recently starting to succumb to the temptations of drugs, alcohol, gambling, self-destruction, and the destruction of others. Just as some Native American people who have contorted and twisted by so many centuries of abuse, so too were those survivors of the European genocide. Both are completely forgivable in my eyes. Now I see I have a double duty. I must not only honor and revitalize my Diné culture, but also that of my European ancestors. This ancient indigenous European culture is just as beautiful as Native American culture and was just as tragically murdered and hidden from history books. And so, some years later, armed with this new understanding, I traveled to Europe. I scaled a beautiful mountain in Switzerland to see if I might hear hints of ceremonial songs in the wind. I stepped upon the earth guided by those grandmother and grandfather whispers. 
I plucked a strand of hair from my scalp and placed the offering upon the earth, still wet from morning dew. I ambled through the forests, enchanted by the new sights and smells, and I did see glimmers of visions of the villages of yesteryear, and they were full of earth people living out harmonious community, and they had beautiful music. As the sun went down, I fell back on the grass and looked up to the sky. At the time, I was going through a very painful separation from a person I loved. To my surprise, it felt as if the earth was pulling all the sorrow I was carrying down into her core where she could transform it into beauty. The sky was speaking to me about how I didn't need to worry, that I would be happy again one day. The earth and the sky healed me that day from the great weight I had carried for months. It was a special reunion with the mountains of my foremothers. My mountain experiment yielded astounding results. The great sacred motherland of Europe is still alive and breathing and waiting for her children to come home. She is waiting for us to ask her for songs so that we may sing to her once again. She is waiting for us to scratch past the surface of time into the BC period when our languages were thriving and our dancing feet kissed the face of the earth. She is waiting. She is waiting for us to remember who we are. If you hold this descent or any forgotten descent for that matter, I'm asking you to join me in this prayer to remember who we are. I have a feeling this prayer will heal the world. In 2009, archaeologists came across a female effigy believed to be the goddess of the earth buried inside of German soil. The radiocarbon dating tests came back. They indicate that this clay deity was molded by European hands 40,000 years ago. 40,000 years ago. This is the time she beckons us to. This is the world she hopes we will remember where man and woman alike held the soil in their hands and saw the value and sanctity of women and of the Mother Earth. This is the world that still flows through our veins, however deafened we have become to it. With prayer, we can learn to hear it once again. I compare this earth-based indigenous European culture to the witch-burning psychosis of the first and second millennia. I cannot help but ask myself, when and how did this egalitarian, earth-loving, woman-honoring culture become the colonial genocidal conquerors that washed up on American shores? Could it be that our beloved indigenous European ancestors were raped and tortured for so many thousands of years that they forgot who they were? Could it be they lived in a pressure cooker of oppression for so long that conquer or be conquered is all they knew? Yes, I believe so. Our task is to shake the amnesia, to not be ashamed of Europeanness, but to reclaim our beautiful grandmothers, to reclaim our venerable grandfathers, to reclaim our lost languages, our lost ceremonies, our lost homelands, and become one with great sacred motherland of Europe once again. The European diaspora is spread all throughout the world, searching the planet for something that lives inside. Mm. I promise you will hear it when you climb the mountains of Switzerland, of Scotland, of Tuscany, of Hungary, of Portugal, of the great sacred motherland of Europe. Just because bad things happen upon her bosom does not mean she is bad. Our task is to honor our ancestors, 
even those who caved beneath the weight of systemic destruction and became conquerors themselves. Our task is to remember that we are those beautiful earth people, the ones who love, the ones whose love and prayers were so strong that they could carry 25 ton bluestone monoliths for miles and miles and build the sacred place of prayer known as Stonehenge. That is who we are. When we remember this, the healing of our lineages come full circle. When we remember this, we will no longer need to borrow spiritual practices from other cultures, although that can be very helpful when there's nothing else to hold on to. When we remember this, we will remember that the fates of all beings are intertwined with our own. When I remembered this, I found wholeness in myself, no longer a half-breed, but a daughter of two great lineages, two great rivers that ran together to make one precious child. This is the story of how I became whole. Some days it feels like both fire and water live within me. They dance and swirl around one another. In the morning when I wake up, each bows to the other, honoring themselves as equals, as beautiful. When I go to sleep at night, they wish each other good dreams. They teach me how it could have been when Columbus first stepped upon Taino's shores, a meeting of two long lost brothers embracing each other and celebrating their unique cultures. They teach me how things can be for our children in the future. Because that's what matters most, doesn't it? Not how the story goes, but how it ends. We each hold a pen. Let us co-author a story of how humanity fell in love with itself and in its Mother Earth once again. So that's the end of today's episode. Notice where you feel the episode inside of your body. Those sensations, those expressions, that's how your body speaks to you. Sit with it, be with it, and let whatever wants to come up, come up. Because all the wisdom you're looking for is right there in those sensations. If you want to go deeper into these practices or find more information about my work, please visit holisticlifenavigation.com. I'll see you next time. Did you know your food cravings are actually a doorway to your subconscious? They are. We tend to see cravings as something bad or something we just give into mindlessly. But when you embody your cravings, you're able to notice they're just blossoming from a certain place that has a certain need and needs your attention. Join me on Wednesday, May 29th, as I unpack this in a new webinar called Cravings Destigmatized. In this webinar, I'll help you learn the difference between a nutritional craving and an emotional craving as well as how do we use cravings to get in touch with our unmet needs and any of our unconscious, unprocessed emotional experiences. It begins at 4 p.m. Eastern, and everyone who registers will get a replay. You can find the link in the episode details, and you can also go to www.holisticlifenavigation.com and click on events, and the information is right there. Hope to see you there.